0: Hello and welcome to the March IBMS Poll. Today we are joined by IBMS Chief Executive David Wells for a wide ranging discussion covering everything from pathology networks to promoting the profession to David's work at NHS England during the pandemic. After which, Lorna Cleverly drops in for a fascinating lab life in which she gives us an insight into her work as Head of Animal Health Monitoring at Thera Science. But first up, as always, here are the news headlines
1: attending ibms congress we're looking forward to catching up with the profession in birmingham from the 14th to 17th of march you can check out details of talks and presentations on our website this year we also have an app dedicated to congress just search ibms congress in the app store now
2: healthcare science week is taking place the 14th to the 20th of march we're excited to release a new edition of our super lab comic available in print for healthcare science week SuperLab is our comic aimed at children ages 7 to 11 and features all sorts of fun activities designed to inform young people about the science at the heart of healthcare.
1: Our journal, the British Journal of Biomedical Science, recently moved to gold open access with new publisher Frontiers, meaning anyone is now able to freely access the latest cutting edge research in biomedical science. You can check out the most recent and popular papers via their website now.
2: Biomedical Science Day is taking place on the 9th of June this year. If you are planning to organize events for the day, consider applying for the Biomedical Science Day Activity Fund. The fund will provide grants of up to 500 pounds for IBMS members to develop their activities and events. See our website to apply to the fund and for more information on all of our stories.
1: So welcome to another episode of IBMS pod. And today we're joined by David Wells, the chief executive of the IBMS. After a career in biomedical science, David Wells has gone on to hold senior roles of NHS England. He helped lead the laboratory response to COVID-19 and is now recognized as one of the most prominent individuals across the profession. David welcome to IBMS pod.
3: Thank you Jordan. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for joining us. So, could we begin with a little bit about your career journey into biomedical science? Could you tell us a little bit about your journey from your time in in practice as a biomedical scientist to leadership and management, and perhaps explain what ignited your passion for biomedical science in the first place?
3: Thanks, Sean. Well, so um, I suppose we start where where was my passion in the first place? I suppose I've always been interested in medicine. I've always wanted a career in medicine. I Uh, And like so many other people, I start off with the ambition of studying medicine as a degree, but uh as things uh, as things are, um, I didn't get the right the, the right grades to 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 study medicine, um, but I now look back on, on my career and think, "What a what a fantastic misfortune to have!" Because I've now been in a position that I would never have been in if I uh, had had done medicine as a as a first degree. I think so. That's the first thing is, and, and I've always had an interest in in science, um, and then the science behind medicine. So. For me, this working within the field of biomedical science has been a very, very natural fit and uh, uh, one that has always kept me interested and, and kept me um, uh, excited with you know, the, the next great innovation. Uh, in, in terms of my career, um, I think I'm. Uh, I think I'm reasonably, reasonably unique, actually, in terms of the depth and breadth of, of my experience. Uh, and, uh, and that uniqueness is one of pure luck, actually, I suspect. But uh, but nonetheless, it really has still been stood in good stead. Uh, I started off at um, Adam Brook's Hospital in Cambridge. Um, I remember now as a, I was a, a medical laboratory assistant uh, working on the hematinics bench, um, which was uh, freshly moved up from hematology into biochemistry. Uh, and I spent there for for a number of years as as a, a, an MLA, and I rolled myself onto a master's course. And um, the then the laboratory manager, Colin Carr, who's a who's a fantastic uh, biomedical scientist himself, and um, uh, went on to be my mentor. Um, he. He, he said to me, why are you a, a, a tra- an MLA when, when you're doing a master's? Why don't you be a trainee? And that started my, my journey to becoming a state registered biomedical scientist, a, a acpc registered biomedical scientist. Um, and again, it was like a, a fortuitous moment, if you like. Uh, then I spent some good period of time working in the biochemistry lab. Um, I, I remember the first period of my life was pouring urines every morning. Um, which was a task uh, to behold, no less, but um, to of the future and other things you might have to handle in your in your professional career working in medicine. Um, but, but, uh, but that led me, it taught me a, a huge range of of technical skills. And I was very lucky that once I'd become state registered that I quickly became a, a senior biomedical scientist in an automated uh, laboratory at Denmark. Um I'm working in a way that I'm working with new technology at the time, that really excited me that uh, you know the way the size and scale of things could be uh, working at scale. Um, I also that in that early years of my career, uh, did a, lot, a bit of work around networking with some of our neighboring hospitals um, and really that sort of gave me the vision, if you like, um one that um, that was would hold me in good stead in, in my future career um, about how how to get systems to work together in a way that they haven't done before for the for the benefit of patients. And um, then I, I um, upsticked and moved to to London, um, where I became a, a chief biological scientist at Norfolk Park and Central Middlesex Hospitals. Um, and I spent uh, four years working there. Um, and, and again, it's a very, very different environment working in a, in a district general hospital compared to working in a large teaching hospital. But it really, again, really taught me all the, the, the bare bones of what we need to do as a profession, all the uh, importance around quality, the importance around making sure we've got a, a highly educated workforce. Um, and and gave me again more exposure to not only biochemistry um, and developing services and introducing new technology, but also um, really uh, highlighting to me um, the impact that pathology can have um, on the diagnostic pathway uh, and the the benefit we can show if we start working in in ways greater than just the the single parts of, of what we do. Um, once I'd, I'd, I'd served my time, as I call it, at, at Norfolk Park, which was, like I said, as a very challenging organisation to work for because it was very strapped for cash. But I can tell you now, the services that we provided there, and, and I know they continue to provide there now, are were second to none. Um, and uh, again, that, that taught me that actually, when you're providing pathology services, it isn't all about. Uh, how much cash you've got or, or whatever, is about the dedication you've got in your teams, uh, the the commitment to doing the right job, the commitment to making sure that they're delivering the right services to their patients. Um, and delivering in a cash-strap way um, uh, really highlighted what was the vital parts of our services to make sure that um, you know we we do the best for our patients. Um, then I got an opportunity to go and work at um, Great Ormond Street Hospital, um, initially as their biochemistry lab manager, but then as their lead lab manager and this is a really great time of my of my career actually I must admit, I've, I've uh, uh, met some fantastic people i worked with some really very very amazing people um across my career but um some of those at Graham Street were really well because the, the services they're providing are quite unique across the world and um a, a real induction to me having worked in a teaching hospital and a, a general hospital um to go into a highly specialist hospital to see those last chance tests that we do, the tests that really are the unique tests, the tests that really um, uh, advise clinicians um, around some of the rarest diseases we see, uh, and see the dedication of them to making sure that actually they're providing services in the right way. And we're, talk- and we're talking about services that sometimes are in the life care, but also some are actually at the very cutting edge of medicine, making sure that we save people's lives. And Great Ormond Street um, was a, an example of how we should use technology in the right way, and how we can make, you know, we need to make sure that um, as we move forward through our professions, that we always adopt and learn new ways of doing things to improve our services, and not be afraid of uh, going in and challenging, challenging the status quo. Uh, so that was, and again, like I said, I, I, I still look back um, with huge fond memories of VMware because it's such, a, it's such a fantastic place to work and so worthwhile in terms of what it does. Um, uh, and, and, I, and I would say to anyone who um, has the opportunity, you know, to to really expand your horizon when you're when you're move your career, because you do get to to work with some fantastic people if you do that. And my next stage was then um, further up. Um, I was headhunted to join uh, what was then a, a company called GSTS, which went on to become called Viapath as their operations manager. And I was then running. Um, what was at the time probably one of the largest pathology networks in 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 the country. Um, so it's um, Guys and St Thomas's Hospital and King's College Hospital um, in London, um, and I was able to bring all of the all of my experience and all of my skills to bear, if you like, because uh, at those hospitals they they have everything. They have the specialties that almost Street has. And they have the general services that uh, Norfolk Park had. And they have the teaching hospital facilities that, uh, um, that Admirx has. And for, so for me, it was a very, a very good fit. And uh, again, a hugely enjoyable time working there. Uh, it was a private sector organisation working alongside the NHS. And that really gave me a, a, another opportunity to look through the way we run our profession for, for a different lens, if you like. Um how, how do you run services that are, all, that are A, fit for purpose and of very high quality? And I, and I mean this sincerely. Um, when we look across the, the service we have in the UK, we have exceptionally high quality services. And we should never ever demur from that. And I don't think I, ain't, ain't I in have, I, have I ever allowed the um, services I've been running to demur from that high quality. But you can do that as well as delivering efficiencies, working differently, um, delivering innovative ways of, um, of ensuring that your services are, uh, are, are um, um, uh, doing the right thing for our patients and the right things for our clinicians. Um, and, and I think, again, as I've moved further and further away from the bench, if you like, um, I've not forgotten uh, the importance of what happens at the bench, uh, making sure that actually when we're processing our, our those patient samples that we we're, we're acknowledging that there's a patient at the end of every single one of those those samples. And when you're in charge of a, a very large service that may be covering uh, you know eight million people, that um, you're still have got your mind's eye to the fact that actually at the end of the day, there is somebody there who's awaiting those those diagnostic results and need to get them at the right time, of the right quality in the right way, whilst also de- delivering all the other demands that we have placed upon us around training, education, uh, accreditation, and quality, um, and also uh, very very um, pre- prevalent in our world today, uh, also efficiencies and making sure we can do that. So that was really. Um, my last job um, properly in within a hospital, in his hospital setting uh, before I moved into NHS improvement. So so in terms of my career as a biomedical scientist, and I'm still registered as a biomedical scientist, I still call myself a biomedical scientist, I really have gone right from working on the bench as an MLA all the way through to all the different uh, career levels possible uh, until leading services before I, I left and moved into... Um, an environment which is very different, so very political, um, more pro- policy, and far more strategic.
1: What was it then that made you want to make that transition in your career? And um, what's it been like? Because obviously, it's as you've said, it's two very different environments to work in. So it is. Um, have you found that transition? Yeah.
3: Well, I found the transition quite yeah, relatively. Um, it's easy, I suppose, but but only because um, I've always involved myself in a wider picture. Whenever I've been doing my my day job, if you like, I've always made sure that I've maintained an understanding and a, and a visibility of what's happening um, within the AHS and and. Um, making sure that I've exposed myself to leadership programmes and got involved in change programmes that are bigger than just the local laboratory change programmes. So it wasn't a massive change. But what I will say is, as a scientist, um, the wrench away from the laboratory is one that you have to purposely do. you you to, to hang up your white coat for the last time, if you like, is a difficult thing to do. And, it, and um, I suppose I've probably always been a better manager than a scientist, is the frank answer as to why I've done better there. Um, but it's still a wrench, you know, being a scientist and saying, well, actually, I, you know, I've not put on a white coat for, for some years now. Um, but that doesn't diminish me as a biomedical scientist. Um, it just means that my skill sets were better used elsewhere. As a the way to look at it. Mm.
1: And um was it at this point then that you you joined the NHS Pathology Transformation Scheme and you did some work with the twenty-nine networks?
3: Yeah, so yeah, I did. So so I was lucky enough to join very, very early on in that program. Um and so so again an opportunity came up. To work with NHS Improvement as it was then. Um, And as I said, I've always had an interest in that slightly bigger picture view. And I've also always had, um, going back to my comments right at the start of this, uh, a view that actually working together, working in a bigger unit, is probably the way that pathology services can do better um, in the UK. Um, And um, so for me, this was a, a very natural fit for me, an opportunity to go and deliver what was something which is actually a personally held views and that was the the need to network pathology services across England. Um this this policy is one that's been around for about 20 years. So I remember working when I was working at AdWords that the first Carter report was produced and it recommended then that actually working at scale was a better way to deliver pathology services. And throughout my career I have only seen the evidence uh, that suggests that is the right answer. So giving an opportunity to lead the program to deliver that change for the country was um, a very, very um, pivotal point in my career in terms of actually ambition and, and realising um, a, a role that actually I really felt that I could get behind and I, I could do. Um, and I suppose, not not to blow my own trumpet, but um, someone's got to, um, you know, we saw more progress in those the, the, the time that I was working at NHS Improvement and NHS England uh, in the creation of pathology networks than we'd seen in the previous 20 years. Um, so we joined a programme that was capable and had been given all the, the tools it needed to deliver that change. And also, uh, we were at a point where the system was also starting to realise the benefits. And we saw there, there were a few networks already in place that we we're really able to, to move that forward and having the ability and the, and the freedom to act if you like to design to pull together the advice the guidance the policy behind that was, was a, a real privilege um, and i'm hoping um and uh, i'm hoping that the, the way in which we approached it was still as inclusive as possible so we made sure we were involving all of the professional bodies uh, in that change programme, and a wide-scale range of, of clinicians and pathologists and biomedical scientists and clinical scientists in that change. Um, uh, and I'd and I'm, I'm, I'm like to think, um, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm welcome to see in, in the sort of like next probably ten years how well it sticks, but that was the right approach to take. So people designed their own network as far as possible, or come up with an alternative plan to our plans. Um, before we delivered. And I think um, you know, the, the neat segue is, if, if you like, that without the 29 networks at the outbreak of the pandemic, um, I think pathology services would have would have suffered um, or struggled to deliver what they did deliver. Um, and I think for me that, again, was a, a very proud point in my career that actually i had something which actually really genuinely went on to have a purpose. Okay, and
1: then I think at this point we come up to the COVID 19 pandemic and some of the work that you did for that. and on that note, our uh, partial to Rob is going to cover this area.:
0: Yes Hello, David. Um, um, as the head of pathology at NHS England, you, you were in a pretty pivotal position in unprecedented times. How, how did you feel when COVID 19 arrived?
3: So um, it was a pretty surreal moment, actually. I think if I'm, if I'm being absolutely frank, I, I think we'd, we'd known that the pandemic was, well, at least the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus was uh, likely or possible to return to a pandemic. And we'd started having regular meetings. I remember there's a, a a minute in a meeting I held in December 2019 that said and uh, made reference to COVID-19 saying that actually uh, we, were, we were starting to make sure we engaged with the various events um intel and uh, programs to support that um and, and i think as that went over from december into january into february um slowly but very slowly um you could feel the the changes coming coming about people's expectations and it wasn't really until i put a phone call and, and it was a friday before the last friday in february i had a, a phone call from someone who um, subsequently turned out to be on stage who just phoned me up and said hi david uh just to let you know, uh, Public Health England have, have uh, finished their um their, their um, um uh, public health intervention um, into SARS COVID. It's now a health uh, intervention. So I thought I'd just just bring you up and let you know uh, that you know the, the NHS will need to start standing up its capability in terms of testing uh and um it was a Friday um it was a it was, it was like 7 30 in the evening and I thought okay well, that's fine so I started you know in my brain thinking well what am I going to do Monday morning um, how am I going to approach this on Monday morning and I, I think at that point of course it, it just became an absolute roller coaster I, I suppose is the is the honest um way to describe it because um to say hitting the ground running was not the answer it was it was faster than that and um Uh, It was generally, there's a phrase we used quite a lot, which was, this is a marathon, but we're doing it like a sprint. Um, And, and, you know, we had to to coordinate people. And in the early days, you know, I said about the 29 networks, being able to bring together 29 individuals to start the conversation, to start to build the data we had about what we had, where it was, uh, what capability we had, to, be able to start passing messages back to forth about the expectations being, being given out by the government, et cetera, um, was absolutely pivotal. There's no way we could have done that if we were working in the, in the environment that would be maybe two or three years before. Because working with the 144 laboratories that we had rather than 29 would have been absolutely impossible. It was hard enough for 29. Um, and then, it, like I said, it became absolutely Um, frenetic. I mean, never chaotic, actually, I'll say that. And at no point uh, would I ever say that we were out of control or even the term, I felt that perhaps we were um, um, not moving forward with uh, a clear direction. We had a clear plan, which was to build our testing capability as fast as possible. Uh, and that created some really very inter- interesting challenges. And, and uh, you yeah, know, again, those management decisions you make. I remember bringing up uh, somebody called Jane Mills, who many of you will know now as uh, my my replacement. But uh, her background in supply chain. Um, I recognised was going to be an exceedingly important part of of what we did, and uh, and again, you know, if you want to to signpost heroes of of the pandemic, it's individuals such as Jane Mills and, uh, such so Joshi Joshy, who supported me right from day one, and uh, and others, uh, Barry and Farid, to, to name just just a few, um, were absolutely central in those early days in, in gathering together what we knew, what we didn't know, what we needed to do, and how we were going to approach it. Um, and the team actually was quite small throughout the whole pandemic, um, from the from the central point of view. But it really became you know a part. And and you know, I look back and it's almost one of those things I suspect some people will get PTSD and I, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, many of us do when we recall those times. You know, it was a seven day a week from first thing in the morning to late at night's job. Um, many people made a lot of sacrifices, um, and also family members clearly you know, made sacrifices in terms of of you know missing missing. People who were as busy on the pandemic, it was it was very very it was very very tough, and but um, but a, a, a very very proud point in my career to be able to contribute and, and use my skill set.
0: And you you mentioned supply chains then. I mean, in the early stages of the pandemic, how difficult was it to get supplies into the country? Was that a challenge?
3: Absolutely humongous challenge. I think, um, and again, we approached in the NHS. We quickly realised that actually we had people were placing orders for equipment um, and capability that were just being switched off or changed or or not just not there or available. Um, And we very quickly realised that we need to keep a very broad supply chain coming to the country. Um, We were also competing on a global scale, so we had. You know, the UK, we had just left the EU, um, and was therefore we were working very much on our own in terms of supply chain and, and managing the, the demands. Um, we were trying to make purchases all over, you know, placing purchases in other countries. We 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 don't and we didn't at the time have a very large diagnostic capability within UK in terms of manufacturing. But yeah, we were in a situation where we had um, uh, aeroplanes ready to leave uh, their home countries and having export licences revoked uh, so those equipment could be repurposed elsewhere. Uh, we had supplies that we thought were coming towards us where we thought they were in particular airports and suddenly they weren't in those airports. Um, you know, a, a whole load of things as the, as the whole world rushed to build a cap- capability to undertake um, uh, PCR testing for COVID. Um, all of those added to the challenge but uh, I, I, you know, hats off to our profession who were able to keep on, who were able to build and meet every single target we gave them. Uh, quickly going from, I think on on the March the third, we were able to do about a thousand, maybe two thousand COVID tests for the whole country. And that included P, um, PHE um, as was then. Um, by the end of April, we were at um, sorry, of April we were up at about ten thousand tests per day. End of April, we're up at 25,000 tests per day. And then by October, we were able to sign off at 100,000 tests per day capability. Uh, and then that added to with other different testing. So, you know, so although the challenge was really there at the start about getting the right equipment in the right places, and it felt like the, I would say it felt like the Wild West, it, it felt very, very challenging to, to land that equipment. We were able to to do that um, and and that was the resilience of teams uh, validating your equipment realizing that they couldn't use it going on to different equipment revalidating, re-validating it you know I, I couldn't underestimate the level of work going on behind the scenes so that every single test counted and in the early days and we have to look back and and it's easy to forget actually how we were really in a situation where every single test counted, uh, and I, I remember—I believe that uh, you know, even down to the number of swabs in the country—and a uh, uh, consignment of 300 swabs was went missing uh, somewhere in logistics, and you know the, the military were out looking for them. You know, that's the level of of yeah. um, challenge that was in the system at the time. So, uh, a very interesting time. Mm-hmm.
0: And and how on earth do you go about increasing that testing capacity from you know a, a few hundred to hundreds of thousands? It seems like a, a logistical impossibility to me.
3: Well, it is, but again, but this is where the twenty-five authority networks came in because what we were able to do was get people to target their capability and target their time. So, um, you know, asking people to to produce a capability per network gave people the opportunity to say, okay, well, I can do this. If you can do this, I'll do this for you, or I can send you some people, and that really exemplifies the team working and working at scale because it meant that people can really concentrate or teams could really concentrate on the job at hand they weren't being distracted with the with other components of their role but that perhaps they would have been otherwise um we also had at the time of course you know the um uh, the finances to do such things you know we were able to get people to buy stuff and just you know just buy the stuff that they needed um and that also enabled us to move faster. So you know, the, the, the usual rules around purchasing, et cetera, were largely suspended, not completely, um, but um, yeah, the, the, the sign-off values that people could sign money, you know, uh, uh, contracts at were, was were, were raised, et cetera. Uh, and that meant that actually people were able to get the kit in, pay for the kit, purchase the reagents and, and and have confidence in what we're doing. So I think it is, if I was going to look back, it probably was three things. It was a determination and, and clear leadership about what we're trying to do. So a really clear vision. Um, the second thing was dedication of our, our scientists across the country to to make sure that they knew what they're doing and they're working in unison within their network to deliver that. And then the third thing was that we had the capability to, to expand it. Um, and, and I think this is a real lesson for us, actually, um, and it's something I often say, but it, it really is true. The NHS really is very, very good at innovation, but it's very, very bad at innovation at scale. It really struggles to um, to adopt uh, right across the whole country new technologies. And I often give a a, a couple of examples. There's one example would be uh, troponin T, toponium I, that are markers of heart attacks, when I was first starting off in the lab, troponin tea wasn't available anywhere. Um, it took about 10 to 14 years before we were in a situation where we, uh, every single hospital in the country had access to Chipone tests. And that's a, a really very, very long time for a test that is life-saving. Very, very long indeed. Um, if you then move forward to more recently, you know, there are other examples of tests that still have taken five, six years before they're widely adopted, even though the evidence of their use is, is there. Um, during the pandemic, um, we were able to introduce antibody testing into the NHS for, for COVID, so COVID antibody testing, uh, in two weeks. And actually, in practice, it was much less than two weeks. It actually was about three or four days. And that was down, like again, like I said, a really clear vision about what we we're trying to do, a really clear direction of travel and support in in with teams to to um, to focus their attention on that, and then the financial wherever all to do that. Um, so it, it really shows that you can you can move mountains. It's one of the one of the one of the natural uh, strengths of the NHS is that when it needs to move fast, it can undoubtedly move fast.
0: And do you think it might fundamentally change the way that the NHS works going forward? Because obviously there are massive, massive challenges from the pandemic, but it sounds like in some respects it's actually been quite liberating.
3: I think it has. I think. Um, I would say we're finally on the map. So, so, diagnostics is now finally in a situation where people really understand the, ben- the benefit they bring. You know, during the COVID, we were using testing not only to diagnose individuals but also to coordinate care. So, who could? Go into certain uh, parts of the hospital, uh, who needed to have be treated in certain ways, who needed to be isolated, etc. And that really showed. And, and if, that, if that's just so for one virus, what well, it must be true for all the other viruses out there, and all the other ones out there. You know, we can really we really really play that uh, through, and, and, and the evidence is is you know. Uh, the evidence is that actually you know, diagnostics can really help you. So we're now seeing diagnostics being a pivotal part of the NHS's future plans. So things like the community diagnostic hubs in, in England um, are bringing diagnostics out of the hospitals and into a more community setting. Um, we are looking more and more about how pathology and diagnostic tests can be used to better manage care, particularly around the recovery. So we're using, we're seeing an uptick in diagnostic tests in the pathology laboratory to avoid imaging interventions that require um, I- I imaging time, et cetera. And, and I think those things will really really pay dividends. We're also seeing a massive investment in, in diagnostics, both in, in the digital histopathology um, arena, also in the in the LIMS, so the laboratory information systems arena, but also we're seeing a, a huge injection of cash into our workforce, and, we're, and many of you will be hearing money coming in from... Health Education in England and NHS Improvement uh, and uh, NHS England in terms of supporting more biomedical scientists into the profession, into into the workforce, because they recognised that that was an area that had had significant underinvestment for a number of years. Now, roll forward um To to the next three or four years, we've got a huge uh, challenge face us uh, as a country in terms of our our backlog built up during the pandemic, and diagnostics has an absolutely pivotal part role to play in that. Uh, we will not be able to work out who should be prioritised over over whom without looking at our diagnostics. So I think that's going to really see a big sea change we're also in the situation now where we're visible from from you know from ministers from the civil service etc they recognize now that diagnostic testing is just not a black box that sits somewhere behind you know uh, the engineering department or whatever um, it's now seen as uh, a pivotal part of the healthcare system and therefore should be recognized as such and we've got support of a better diagnostic industry within the uk as well so the world has undoubtedly changed Um, and our profession has undoubtedly changed and I think also we can be really proud of the fact that we managed to get our voice heard at the very highest level in my role I was very lucky that I was able to get audiences with health ministers on a very regular basis I was able to speak to senior leaders in the NHS um, some if it wasn't hourly sometimes uh, it was daily Um, you know we you know we are here and we're here to stay so I suppose my one of the things I need to make sure, uh, and, and we all need to make sure, is we don't lose that ground uh, and we maintain that.
0: Brilliant, well that seems like the perfect point for me to pass you back over to Jordan, talk about the next stage in your career of uh, taking on the role of IBMS Chief Executive.
1: Yeah, so just as you were talking about not having our voice, well how we had our voice heard amongst some of the most senior people in the country and not and retaining that in the future. Um, recently, this area has been quite prominent with our members and in regards to promoting our profession and raising awareness of the contributions uh, that our members bring to society. So, you focused on this in your most recent editorial. And also, this month, we've seen the launch of um, the Pathology Raw campaign, which is for anyone who might not know a set of videos highlighting the role of biomedical scientists and lab assistants. Um, we've seen Members work with the BBC to produce some videos demonstrating the work of our members. So it's it's a very um, popular topic right now amongst our memberships. I'd like to explore some of what we are planning to do to broaden our work in this area. Uh, But to start off, David, uh, could you help us understand... Why is it so important that we have our voice heard and promote the profession at all, but also um, we expand this activity with the government and policymakers?
3: So I think it's quite important because that's fundamentally where the money comes from. That's where the support of what we do really comes from. So when we look across uh, how we innovate and how we drive um, um, our workforce forward, it all comes from uh, central government policy makers. And if they don't know we exist, then they're not going to consider our, our, um, our view as we move forward. And as I said, the importance of diagnostics in the move to recovery into early diagnostics um, is absolutely vital. And if the system and, and uh, governments and Department of Health and Social Care don't hear our voice about that, they will not know the opportunities that we as a profession, a biomedical scientists and, and pathology in general, have, have to offer. Um, and so that that's really why we need to have our voice heard. The other advantage, of course, is that we can influence the way the world changes and the way our work do. How many times have you sat and thought, you know, if only someone who understood this had had input into what's going on right now that's how we change it we need to be the people who understand it and we get, get the right input so that's that's why it's so important um and um i, I go back to before i joined genetics england improvement you know the amount of investment going into pathology was tiny absolutely tiny but during during my time there and post my time there we've taught seen the sort of investment that we probably haven't seen for decades um, and it's because our voice is being heard it is really where we, where we are. That's, that's why, why it's so important.
1: And on that note, um, before we kind of go on to some of the future plans outlined in the most recent IBMS strategy for this, I'd just like to yeah, establish where we are in regards to the progress we've made so far, because I know during the pandemic, we've actually made quite a lot of progress in becoming more visible to the public. So yeah. um, what's your take on that?
3: So I'm hoping what people are seeing is we're we're commenting more on on, um, uh, areas that our members might be interested in. We're we're trying to make sure that we have a regular um, voice coming out on things that are happening, particularly as the pandemic um, progresses into a more endemic situation, but also in terms of other bits and pieces. Um, We have included in our strategy, as far as 2022 strategy, um, which has been published, we included the... Uh, development sort of a policy unit to to help us continue to grow that and making sure we we are getting our foot in the doors of policymakers and government uh, to make sure that we can uh, we we can hear, we can be heard. Um, and also, we've got things such as the um, IRMA's you know, Congress coming up uh, um, in uh, in a couple of weeks from, from the date of this recording. Um, that um, we've got people like Lord Bethel attending. We've got uh, Jonathan Van Tam attending. Um, we, we've got to make sure that we're um, speaking with people or, or hearing people. Uh, and network with people who have got an opportunity to to, to really, um, for us who, who can influence them in, in what they're doing. Um, so I think so. Those are the sort of things we are doing. Um, there's a lot of a lot more stuff going on in terms of building the diagnostic capability behind this, and making sure we're plugged into a whole range of things that are going on. So um, making more use of the, our seat at the National Pathology Board, working in concert with. Uh, the Royal College of Pathologists and the Association of People of and others um, making sure that we're involved regularly meeting with with health education in England but not only in England also all the equivalents of those bodies in Scotland and Wales and a lot of my job actually since I I started has been in meetings with them some of them are just regular meetings to catch up, have a quick chat about what's going on, hear what hear their news, share our news if you like. But those sort of conversations really work wonders in terms of progressing things, um, and um, and also making sure that our council uh, hear all the news that's going on, understand the implications, and that our council then help support. Work, the body of work that we do in the Institute uh, to make sure it makes sense to, to our members and, and makes sense to the, the, the wider biomedical science arena. So that's the sort of thing we're doing. I think that you're going to see an awful lot more happening over the next year to, to, to two to three years as we push forward our, our strategy. Um, and if I was to quickly pick out one bit that I think people will find most interesting, one of the, one of the parts of our strategy is really starting to build a body of peer-reviewed evidence around the value that biomedical scientists bring to to society. Um, and that sort of thing will really help us, really help us articulate our place in the world in a way that we've not not been able to in the past.
1: Mm,
3: yeah. So this is this
1: would be commissioning actual independent research to help us understand and prove to People across society, why biomedical
3: scientists are just so important. Yeah, and more than that, I think, um, to to understand what else they can do, because um, one of the things that you know, drives my passion, if you like, is, is, is the fact that we can do so much more. You know, when I talk about working at scale in, say, networks, Why not working at a scale in individuals, making sure that each of our individual biomedical scientists and support grade and clinical scientists and, and, and medics are all doing absolutely the top of their capabilities in all they do all the time. That way, we will have a service that is... Absolutely well class, and and I and I mean that you know under you know you know, in those uncertain terms, yeah. but also every single job that people do will be feel, would feel worthwhile and feel valued in what they're doing. So I think that's a really pivotal part of what we want to do. And I, and um, Sarah, May, my deputy, often says that you know the, the 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 depth and range of work that biomedical scientists can do is second to none in any other healthcare profession. We can work in any area of medicine uh, needed so I, I you know I, my background is in biochemistry and I say you know biochemistry is used from before conception to post-mortem there are every single element of pathology that are in the same sort of range of diseases they cover capabilities they cover and you know I would love to see in a situation more biomedical scientists leading clinics you know, patient-facing clinics um, more um, scientists working in reporting roles, more scientists in advanced technology de- um, um, deployment and adoption roles, and more people working in the right places um, and making best use of their of their skill sets. And 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 um, you know, one of the things I will say, um, having worked in in the centre in the E and I during the pandemic, at the height of the pandemic the number of people who had an experience and understanding of pathology speaking to ministers was just two people, me and Professor Joe Martin, Um, And in terms of what what we were doing. Now, that needs not to be the case. We were able to articulate what we needed and are able to provide the advice we needed. But wouldn't it have been easier if there was 30 or 40 people who could be working that? And by the end of the pandemic, that's what we had. But at the start, we didn't. And I think that's the other thing, is we need more people who are working in different roles entirely who have got biomedical science backgrounds to help understand how they all plug together. Absolutely. And
1: this diversity is really going to be on display in, well, just over a week's time at IBMS Congress. And would like to just discuss a little bit more about what's going to be coming up at Congress. I'm going to hand you over to Roy; who's going to ask you about that.
0: Yes, David, by the time this... Podcast land. We'll be exactly one week away from the first day of Congress. Can you tell us a bit about your history with the event?
3: So, well, I, I think my, as a as a um, council member before my my current role, um, I think I've been to every uh, I guess meeting since about. I think my, my first one was probably. The end of 1990s, I think, um, and you know, the, every time I go, I, I'm always impressed in a the size and scale of the education program, and also the size and scale of the of, of the trade show. You know, rightfully we can be very proud, and I I have to doff my cap to um, to Sarah May and, and uh, Mary uh, uh, Mary Helen from from the office in uh, the office towers, and everyone else who contributes to the creation of what is a huge event. It's certainly the largest in the UK. I, I think it must be one of the largest in Europe in terms of of diagnostics. And the like I said, the, the scale of lecture programs is utterly, utterly impressive. Um, so I'm, I'm always wowed by it. Now I'm sitting on the on the other side. I'm still just as mystified at how it all pulls together, but still uh, excited about what's going to happen.
0: And there are some pretty big hitters on the program this year. I mean what, what do you think people should expect and how Will Congress feel different from previous congresses
3: Well I'm hoping that Congress this this year will be one of two twofolds one a real celebration of the contribution that us as a profession gave through the pandemic uh, and you know I, I, I don't think we should be abashed or ashamed to really celebrate uh, what we have done as a as a profession as a workforce. So I think that's the first thing I would I want to make sure that we take home with us. And the second thing is really about that future, that new future that involves us in a much bigger scale and involves us in a much with a much louder voice. So like I said, we've got um Lord Bethel who'll be there to talk about uh, his experience of pandemic. We've got um NHS England there talking about the networking programs. Uh, we've got Joe Martin, who's the national uh, pathology lead from um, NHS England, coming in as well. Uh, we've got Jonathan Van Tam talking to us, um, and we've got um, Isabel from uh, Health Education England, all talking about what we've done, how we did it, and what we need to do in the future. Um, and, and what a brilliant way to uh, to relaunch, obviously Congress was delayed from from last year to relaunch our, our regular series, if you like, um, or face to face meetings. And so I think that's in me.
0: There's such a massive array going on at Congress of different streams, different talks. Have you got any advice for those who, who might be attending for the first time as to what they should do and how they should deal with all that massive influx of information?
3: Well, I mean, uh, what, what I always used to do was, was, was get the Congress programme and, and tick off what I wanted to do and just see where it clashed and, and worked, worked out each day what I was going to go and do. And I think spending, you know, uh, uh, a good good half an hour um, on on looking what's what's going to happen and planning where you'll be um, is is probably time very very well spent because there is a lot happening um, and um, it would you you will find out that you've missed something you really wanted and it'll only be worse if you have plans uh, and I suppose I'll, I'll also say you know, download the Congress app on your smartphone because that will help you because you can actually diarise everything as well, on, on, on that. But I think that's my advice: is make sure make sure you 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 think ahead. But also, my other bit of advice is to make sure you you schedule some time to go around the trade show. Um, and again, you know, go and talk to the people who are there. Go and talk to um, the exhibitors. Uh, find out more about the kit because you know we all we have, you know I know from my own experience. Yeah, you know, well, I've worked in a lab. You know your own supplier very very well, but go and find out more about your other suppliers because. That's where innovation really comes um, and, and it gives you the opportunity to go and pay your supplier off other suppliers if you know that uh, the competition is doing something you want them to, you know, you want them to do. So again, more exhibitors than ever. Um, the diagnostic space is very, very different to what it was uh, three years ago. Um, there'll be some new and exciting companies there as much as the, the old Inverse Commons companies. Uh, who will be there showing off their kit. So, you know, please do make time for that. And also there's lots of side events. Um, UCAS have, have got some bits and pieces. There are, um, you know, breakfast meetings. And, and of course, there's the, the social events. Um, don't miss the social events. If that's uh, one, one last bit of advice, is don't miss the social events because they're always very good.
0: Brilliant. And one last final question just to round things off. On the programme, a lot of the sessions t- are about or touch on COVID-19, the pandemic. If we fast forward two years to the next Congress, David, are we still going to be seeing COVID-19 as such a prominent issue or will the pandemic be endemic and we won't be thinking about
3: it so much? So, so I think from my personal point of view, I think the, 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 the virus will be endemic. Um, However, I think the the shockwaves that we have felt because of it will still be there. And they may well have shifted away from um, looking more in detail at PCR machines and perhaps moved more to automation of, say, histopathology laboratories or um, better use of digital um, and AI tools. Um, but the shockwaves will still be there, and they'll, and they'll be there for a while to come. I think. Um, I suppose if you were to look and, and reflect back, you, you know, people still talk about the flu pandemic of twenty eighteen. You know, there's a reason why people still talk about it because it reverberated across history for a while. Um, and I, I think we will not be free of COVID in terms of that reverberation for a while. Um, but I'm hoping that the next Congress the, 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 um, uh, will be one that is. Um, much more looking forward to a brighter future. And, and hopefully, some of those, uh, to, to call your phrase, some of the green shoots of what we put in place now showing signs of, of flowering.
0: That's a lovely, optimistic note to leave things on. David, thank you so much for your time.
2: Hello,
4: and welcome to Lab Life. I'm Dr. Martin Kishara, and I'm your host for this part of the IBMS pod. As usual, we've got a really interesting and amazing scientist to interview on the podcast. But unlike many of the people that we've interviewed before, this scientist doesn't deal with human samples. She's more familiar with samples from animals. Why don't you tell us who you
5: are and what you do? I'm Lorna Cleverly, and I'm the Head of Animal Health Monitoring for Ferriscience. I'm the head of a laboratory that monitors laboratory animals, main, mainly mice, rats and fish. Although we call it a health monitoring laboratory, really, it's essentially a microbiology laboratory, and we do a lot of molecular diagnostics.
4: Why do we need companies like Ferriscience?
5: Really, what we need to do is monitor animals used for research for three main reasons. Firstly, we need to know that they are physically well, so there aren't any organisms that are going to cause them any Um, clinical illness. We also need to know that the organisms they carry aren't going to affect the research outcomes. And importantly, we need to confirm that they're not carrying any zoonotic organisms that could pass to the animal carers.
4: I know that you've had a really interesting pathway to get to the career that you're actually in now. So can you tell us a bit about how you got to, where you've got to today?
5: I started off as an MLSO. So I trained as an MLSO. I did an HNC in medical laboratory science. And I have to say that's the best course I ever did. Um, I worked at Nobles Hospital as a trainee and then qualified in 1990. I went on and I did the fellowship primary and then the master's degree and worked as a biomedical scientist. Then went to York District Hospital and North Cumbria QNHS Trust as a microbiologist in the medical microbiology laboratory. Um, And when I moved from Cumbria to Hull, I didn't want to do on-call and weekend working. So I looked for other jobs in microbiology and I got a job with a laboratory animal breeder. I was a little bit, you know, do I want to do that? But I went and had a look and I started work for them and I really enjoyed it. And I very quickly got promoted because I was able to make some changes in their laboratories, bring that medical model into the animal laboratory. I did that for seven years. I then set up a consultancy company. And after the first year, I was asked to go and work for Science and set a laboratory up for them. The equipment they had was incredible and it was really a no-brainer. So I knew that was a good move for me. So I moved to Ferra and set up the service and we now have a very successful health monitoring service with Ferra Science.
4: How far do the similarities between the sort of laboratory and the techniques that you work in go towards the sort of laboratories that some of the people who might be listening to this, you know, how similar are they?
5: Do you know what? It's exactly the same methods. Where we might be a little bit different is that we've moved now towards more molecular diagnosis. So most of what we do, I would say probably about 80% of what we do is molecular based screening. But in terms of the organism's all the sorts of organisms that that humans carry, mice also carry. And it's that similarity with humans that makes them an ideal model for research.
4: We've talked about animals and how you support the health and the quality of animals for for science. Obviously, it's quite a contentious issue, the whole idea of animals being used for experimentation. Why do we still need to use animals for science?
5: Um, It is a very emotive subject, and unfortunately, we still need to use animals for science. Nobody really wants to use animals for science, but there's some areas of science where we can't replace them. There are scientific groups, there are organisations that their whole focus is to look at alternatives to the use of animals in research. Um, So using things like computer modelling, tissue culture, uh, Using organisms like nematodes to replace mice, but we still need to use them unfortunately for various areas of research. If you're interested in, in this area, I would recommend looking at the website understanding animal research, and there's lots and lots of information on there. Most of the advances that you see, so the COVID vaccine, any drug cancer drugs, cancer research, still need to involve animal research.
4: So there is this three R's movement in animal research, you know, where we try and actually use less animals or use different things. How does that influence the sort of work that you do?
5: So yeah, the three R's are replacement, refinement, and reduction. So if you can replace an animal in an experiment, that's what you should do. You should find an alternative if there's one available. You should refine your experiment so that you use the least number of animals possible. And so you're not repeating experiments because your experiment wasn't properly thought out in the first place so you're having to repeat it and use yet more animals so you've got to refine your experiment and you also reduce so you use the minimal number of animals that you possibly can in that experiment and this is the focus of everybody's research for us the what we did was we moved from a traditional based screening strategy which would involve actually putting the mice to sleep doing a post-mortem taking samples to doing live monitoring so we take an oral swab, we take some faecal samples, and we take a pelt swab. And so they're non-invasive. You know, an oral swab isn't an unpleasant swab to take. I'm sure everybody's had an oral swab taken when they go to the doctors. So we take those three samples and we're able to monitor something like 70 different agents from those samples. And that means you can use less mice because you're not replacing them every time to take your samples. So you're using less mice. Uh, It's non-invasive and It sits well with the three R's. So that's the way we've been doing that. But we've also adopted methods for monitoring the environment instead of the animals directly. So you need less animals then. You can monitor filters in their housing. So their housing is IVCs, which are individually ventilated cage systems, and a filter is placed in the exhaust, and you can monitor agents from the filter paper. So lots of things... We've done in animal health to move away from culling animals, from from using animals, so to reduce those numbers of animals, these methods have been adopted over the last ten years, and and this is why most of what we do now is molecular based screening.
4: So many biomedical scientists, particularly those that are more senior in their career, they get chance to sort of influence practice within their discipline, if you like. So, yeah. how how are you influencing the sort of the, the world in which you work?
5: I've been really, really lucky because I've been involved in setting standards or recommendations. We call them recommendations rather than standards because it's up to the facility whether they want to adopt those, those recommendations. But I've been involved at a European level for monitoring non-human primates and really it was my knowledge that i brought from human microbiology that was useful for that group so i worked with vets from all over europe to produce recommendations published a couple of years ago and i'm really lucky that I've, i'm on another group now another working group european working group where we're looking at best practice in monitoring individually ventilated cage rack systems so and looking specifically at mice and and how we're going to get the best result from monitoring those mice in that particular housing type.
4: If anybody out there is is like me, right, they'll be thinking exactly the same thing. What I want to know is, do you ever get bitten? What's the hardest animal to work with?
5: (laughs) I have actually been bitten by a mouse and they don't let go. They just (laughs) hold on to your finger and what you want to do is go, ah, but you can't do that because you've got a little mouse attached to your finger and you have to just Wait for them to let go of your finger. Uh, that uh, That's only happened to me once, but I don't do a lot of animal handling. But, you know, a lot of people that work with mice, they know how to handle them, how to work with them without stressing them because you don't want a stressed animal. That will affect your results at the end of the day. Uh, So I don't generally get bitten and to people who work with them, although they are occasionally bitten, they tend to know how to handle them. And as long as the animal's calm, they're not actually going to bite you.
4: So if there's somebody out there who uh, has been really inspired by our conversation today and they feel like making that jump from what I suppose human biomedical science to veterinary biomedical science, how can they find out more?
5: Well, my area is a very specific area of veterinary science. And if anybody is interested, I would say contact me. I'm on LinkedIn. You can go to the Ferro website and look at animal health monitoring and send us an email at animalhealth at farrah.co.uk. And I'd be more than interested to talk to you because I think having more biomedical scientists in this field will only improve the quality of the results that we're reporting. I would love to see more biomedical scientists in laboratory animal microbiology.
4: Well, I think that's all the time we've got today. Lorna, thank you for being an amazing part of the podcast and for such a brilliant conversation today.
5: Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure and an honour. Thank you very much.
4: Well, that's all for me for now. Catch you on another episode of Lab Live soon. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. These podcasts are released monthly
0: at the same time the magazine comes out, so whenever a new issue lands on your doormat, head back online to listen to a new episode. And don't forget that these podcasts can be used for your CPD. Take care and bye.